Let's continue with our series titled Ascend. Um, this is a close look at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're looking today, if you've got your Bibles. And uh, we're in the last part of the journey now. And uh, we're talking about ongoing upward motion. And we're just jumping a gun just a bit. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, we've been talking about three different ideas of upward motion. And I've got a bit of a chuckle at this now. Because I've talked about looking up, because that was what the first three chapters sort of led me to speak about. Uh, just the, the idea of, of looking up, because there's high praise and this exuberant understanding of God. And so we look up at that, and we gaze at God in that, and we're drawn upwards. And then we talk about stepping up. We talk about, in light of that, live out worthy of the calling that we have. And then as we started talking about the armor of God last week, I introduced the new idea, which is called suiting up. Now, that, that's normally a military term. You know, suit up everybody, let's go to battle. Uh, and then I look around the room today, <laughs> and I've got an auditorium full of men all suited up. Yeah. Like, seriously, I've got, there's like, there's, I'm counting, like, there's, there's suits and ties, and I'm going, gee, was there a wedding I missed the brief on? Was it, <laughs> uh, did, I, did I not do the paperwork in time? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm like going, what's going on here? And I thought there might have been something to do with youth group because of the, you know, it was Liam and Andrew first and then all of a sudden some older, you know, some of the more mature guys not in youth leadership. I'm like, something's going on here. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, well done. I didn't get the memo, though. <laughs> it's like... That's good. That track record. If, if you see me in a suit, it's either your wedding or your funeral. It's a <laughs> that's, uh, so we're either celebrating or not. Um, but anyway, good on you guys. Good on you. All right. Last week, we talked about the call to stand strong in the Lord and to be ready and planted against the devil's schemes uh, by putting on the whole armor of God. And we learned that you're supposed to put on the whole thing, not just pick and choose. All right, if you pick something and leave something else behind, uh, you're going to end up like, you know, Ned Kelly getting shot in the legs. It's just the wrong way to go about it. All right, we go in fully armored or we don't go in at all. And uh, so we've talked about a lot of background. And uh, today we're going to reset the scene uh, with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Let me read it out to you from the NIV. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which you can, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Right, to get into our thinking here, to get into Paul's thinking here, we need to bear in mind where he is as he writes this. And of course, if you know anything about this, it's likely he's in a Roman prison cell at this time. All right, AD 61, he's spoken about chains and, and prisons and stuff. So that's pretty much where he is. Uh, we can imagine the surroundings, um, you know, to some degree. A bed of, of sorts, a hole in the ground for personal waste, very limited light, the likelihood of a constant companion in the form of a Roman guard. And uh, also the good Pharisee that was Paul would no doubt have the idea of God wearing an armor in his mind from Isaiah. And, so, and in his mind, perhaps 
so should the church when it comes to the spiritual battle they're in. He has a relatable earthly example of this pretty close to him as he writes all this. And so he has a soldier on duty. Therefore, he has a soldier in full armor sitting in front of him as, as he does this. Being in prison, he has plenty of time in his hands and uh, perhaps even has time to interview the soldiers about the way the armor was fitted and used. In fact, I suspect, given the, uh, the order that he's written this, that he most likely did understand that and actually interacted with the soldiers as he did this. In this passage, the first thing to grab Paul's attention is the belt. Now, the belt was made of sturdy leather. leather. It, it contained loops for all sorts of equipment that the soldier would be working with uh, in battle situations. Uh, a ration sack was attached to that thing. Um, darts and swords and all sorts of stuff was all attached to that. If you want a Hollywood example, think Batman and his utility belt. If you're a tradie, think of the tool belt. All right, I, I've learned to rely on that. If I'm wearing that, if I go on the roof of the house and I've got my tool belt, I want to make sure everything's in place. I want to make sure I've got everything I need in that thing because the most annoying thing on the planet is to go back down the ladder to go find something. All right, once I'm up there, I want to get the job done. Paul would have found out in his discussions that, with, uh, that the belt was in fact the first piece of armor that was fitted. It was tied off strategically. So it sat exactly as the soldier needed it to sit, no matter how much he moved around. As a result, every piece of equipment was in a place where he could reach without a thought for its position. Bang, bang. You know, me as a tradie, tape measure, hammer, you know, you know uh, in a soldier in battle, sword, food, you know, all the stuff they need. Everything was at reach without any thought whatsoever. It was tied in place with the greatest of care. Because in the heat of battle, a life of a soldier depended on this. So Paul obviously thinks about the church about after that. He, uh, what things in that setting need to be tied firmly in place, as if your very life and your very eternity depended on that? What would your sword and your sustenance hang on? What would you constantly need to know was at your side in the exact place you knew it to be, no matter how much you were being forced to move. The shakiest and most tumultuous times for a believer, both then and now, is when truth is challenged by Artemis and the Empire. It's the times when our foundational our convictions are being questioned both externally and from within. We're seeing in the public square right now that it's the attacks against truth in the modern West that seem to be the most aggressive. They seek to create turmoil and trouble right in the place where we are supposed to be our most stable as believers. In Rome, if you had no belt, you couldn't wear your armor. In Christianity, if we have no conviction, if we have no deep-seated and unmovable sense of truth, we really don't have much for our Christian claims to hang on to. 
That's why every new believer course, such as Alpha and our elementary material, follow the plans that they do. The first thing someone circling the claims of Christ needs to engage with is truth and conviction. If we're not absolutely convinced of Jesus' truth, how can we place the biblical understanding of faith on that? In Ephesus, the truth about Christ was being challenged by about 50 other religious ideals, by the empire, and soon this would be challenged internally through false teachers as well starting to rise up in the church in Ephesus. There would no doubt be new believers who were trying to work out if Christianity was in fact truth when another pagan god once was. After all, their very life and eternity depended on this being truth, given the looming threats of Nero at the time as well. It had to be truth or it had to be something you backed right away from. Your life would depend on whether that was truth or not. Would, the tr would truth be fitted tightly enough around them in order to lay their life down for it if it was required? By fitting their belt, a soldier was deliberately beginning the process of readying themselves for whatever lay ahead and for whatever environment they were about to enter. They knew If they knew whatever, whatever the conditions were going to be for battle, they would make sure that belt was fitted for that purpose. If they knew they had to go into hard terrain, they would make sure there was stuff attached to that that would allow to go through that. If they knew it was going to be particular fierce or really close hand-to-hand -hand combat, they would make sure they took the right weapons for that. If they knew it was going to be you know, something they could work from a distance, well, they'd probably take the arrows or whatever it was. They would, they would kit themselves on their belts based on what was lying ahead. They would have to carefully prepare what lay, for what they knew would lie ahead. In the same way, our convictions, our sense of truth is our personal statement of preparation for what lies ahead in the way we're going to engage with our faith in the public space. Conviction to me is the decision we make and the truth we have come to well before we need to stand on it. It's the belt we put on well before it's going to be challenged. It's the truth we've got worked out before it's going to be um, pressed and tested. It's the convictions, the unshakable idea of who Jesus is in our lives that can't be moved in any way come hell or high water. You cannot form convictions in the middle of battle. You've got to be prepared for that. You go into battle with whatever convictions you have and will they stand or fall? Well, you will find out the easy or the hard way. And there is truth that God provides. And there is a human imitation of truth. Some scholars have interpreted this sense of truth not so much as conviction, but as the sincerity of the heart that can be found in a believer. They take the accused, they say that John Kelvin kind of fed that thinking. For me, that falls a little bit short. 
because our hearts can be in the right place a lot of the time. And yet we can still remain in error or falsehood. We can be incredibly sincere about stuff and be sincerely wrong in the process. This can happen when we develop a truth that sounds Christian-like but has insufficient biblical foundation to be adequately deemed truth. Someone last week in America actually tweeted, Jesus taught men to fish. They're, you know, he's actually quite in Confucius. You know, teach a man to fish and they'll live forever or whatever, or they'll be able to, you know, set themselves up for living sort of thing. He's kind of trying to defend some of the American ideals that are going on over there at the moment. Taking, Jesus actually fed 5,000 people without them actually, you know, and didn't teach them how to throw a line in. You know, Jesus wasn't a fisherman, he was a carpenter. I have all sorts of issues with some of those things that people are saying at the moment, but there's a lot of Confucius-type things and lots of other stuff, other religious ideals, other things that are quoted and somehow credited with Jesus or credited with Christianity, and yet they fall so dramatically short in the reality of what the Christian faith is about. You'll know that you've got an imitation of truth when you simply can't bring yourself to behave like your eternity or the eternity of those around you can stand on it. You'll know this when you find your answers regarding your convictions and they sound more like, this is what I think, rather than this is what I believe or this is what I know to be for certain. The way to examine this is by asking ourselves some key searching questions. What do I truly believe about who Jesus is? How do I know with certainty that he is in fact the truth to base my life on? And can I back my answers up with a solid biblical presentation? Or am I guessing my way through? Or hanging on to truth others have told me? If we can't answer those questions swiftly, then our belt of truth is not tied off enough. Tell me your truth about Jesus. Oh, uh, hang on, I'll get back to you in a week. No, uh, uh, tie your belt off tighter. If we can't come to areas of truth and certainty and conviction at a moment's notice, we need to make sure our belt is a little bit tighter and better place. It's moved around in battle, friends. The things we need are not quickly at reach, and that's a dangerous and vulnerable place to put ourselves in. And the end result will be that our whole armor will be out of alignment. Paul then looks upward, and he admires the breastplate of the soldiers around him. This couldn't be fitted until the belt was firmly fastened because the breastplate connected at the bottom to the belt to hold it in place. So being prepared for battle with all you needed at your reach is intertwined with the key piece of armor that protects your heart. 
This thing was lightweight, but also well-made and tightly fitted for maximum protection of the most vital part of your body. A wound in the heart in the heat of battle, that was always a fatal thing. You get wounded in the heart in the street, the ambulance might get you and save you in time, but on the battle, no hope. We've already looked at the idea that Paul would have recalled the idea of God wearing a breastplate, which is called righteousness. So as he ponders this, he would need to ask this, how does a believer know that his heart is safe? Well, by covering it with righteousness. And a righteousness which is hinged on the correct fitting of truth. Righteousness is simply the position of right standing that we have before God. There's a number of false breastplate options spoken of in Scripture. There was a number of ways people tried to accomplish the impossible task of becoming righteous. The ancient pagans tried the tactic of appeasement. To get in the good books of their gods, they made sacrifices in terrible ways to show that they were fair dinkum. In the ancient Canaanite religions, this included sacrificing children. The pagans had no clue about a loving God, only ones that needed to be appeased, to hope the anger of the gods would pass them by. The non-religious would try to simply clean their lives up and hope that sufficed. This is basically the mindset of people who claim that they will hopefully be okay if they meet God, because somehow their good will outweigh the bad. The first century Jews used their religious observance to try to gain leverage with God and tip the scales their way. They had ritual, they had rules. They also had to their credit the knowledge of a loving God. But they ticked boxes, they did all the human things and became self-righteous as a result. And instead of any of those things, Christianity teaches about righteousness being gifted instead of earned. It's not just the right standing where God is a forgetful grandfather figure who just pats us on the head and sends us on our way. But it's a brand of righteousness which comes straight out of the character of God and is credited, imputed, bestowed upon us. This took place not because of our merit, but because of God's great love for us. And it's placed on us at the time we placed our faith in his true gospel. Let me consider something from Philippians 3 here, what Paul writes. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting for the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. How's that for, you know, you look in the mirror going, I am faultless. faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. All that Paul held him in, in, in thought, all that he thought held him in good stead was now in his mind garbage and useless. When you wear the wrong righteousness, 
you are wearing useless armor, which should be thrown out and never used again. It's almost like going into Iraq with an ice cream lid around your chest. If we ignore the warnings and keep hearing, you know, wearing our homemade breastplates, our heart will simply not be safe. Some years ago, I read an interesting book, uh, an author, Andy McNabb. I don't know if you've ever read it, heard of him or read any of his stuff. Um, he wrote about this, the journey of training for the SAS and becoming a, a soldier there. It was before he was actually taken as a prisoner of war in Iraq. Um, he tells of one incident where he had possession of what he believed to be Kevlar bulletproof armor. Out of boredom in the barracks, he and his mates decided they wanted to test that thing out by putting it out there somewhere and shooting at it. In the lead-up to this, all the soldiers were all arguing over who would wear it for the test. They ended up hanging it on a tree somewhere because everyone wanted to shoot it, not wear it. In fairness, being a target is not what an SAS soldier trains for. This actually turned out to be a smart thing because they learned after the fact that the armor in their possession was for demonstration purposes only. Nothing more than fiberglass and it shattered on the first bullet's impact. When it comes to the armor of God, only one form of righteousness is spiritual Kevlar. The others will simply not hold up in battle because they don't fit correctly with truth. So the belt fits first, then the breastplate. And our last thing in today's time is this. He notes the other item that is among the first things put on, footwear. And the phrase Paul uses here is a foot that is readied. An ancient Roman soldier had a very specific way of doing this, which gave them an edge over their more primitive foes that they often had. Their battle shoes were made for tougher terrain. They had spikes in their soles designed for traction and endurance. While traveling, these things were designed for comfort and stability. There was extensive marching. And you had to know that your feet would arrive at the battle scene not blistered and not broken at the end of the trek. There was no point going all that way only to be shot down because your feet failed you at the last hurdle. In battle, these shoes were designed to hold the line without being pushed back with the smallest of force. The first thing you learn about close quarters fighting is to get someone off their feet or reduce their grounding or their footing. Ancient warfare training involved a lot of work in this area, both offensively and defensively. Good footwear and preparation to stand helped to thwart those tactics against you and made you more effective when you went on the offense. And once the marching had been done, and once the initial onslaught of the enemy had been withstood, you would then be positioned to take ground. That was the Roman expectation of its military. In fact, it's the expectation of any nation or kingdom, it's what they would ask of any army now, including the kingdom of God. How many know that if all you do is rock up and just hold the line, peace can never occur. 
and neither will any conquest. So essentially, the orders of the sovereign are not being adhered to, if that's all we do. I'm just going to stand here. Oops, there's a bullet. Oops, dodge that one. Oops. If that's all we're doing for the rest of our life, that's not really kingdom business, friends. The orders of Roman armies was to bring the peace of its sovereign and to extend the borders of the sovereign's reign. That's what the Pax Romana meant. The military were agents and facilitators of the peace of Rome. So Paul then gets thinking about all that and starts thinking about the spiritual grounding, the spiritual readiness and offensive tactics of the Ephesian believer. He thinks about the endurance a believer needs. He thinks about the attacks a believer needs to hold the line on. The way a believer needs to remain stable regardless of the environment they find themselves in. He thinks of the ground a believer is supposed to be taking for his king. He thinks of the king's peace he is there to make, not just keep. And it seems that in Paul's mind, planting, stability, and advance comes in the gospel of peace. The gospel as Jesus preached it was the treasonous call to repent and believe, to put all your trust in the peace of the kingdom of God. Romans 5.1 says this, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.7, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. There is a peace which is available to Christians which is not man-made. It cannot be replicated in any way by man because it transcends all understanding. You can take the most brilliant minds in the whole world, give them triple the budget of anything we're doing for COVID right now, and tell them, go unravel peace. And they'll never replicate what God does. This unexplainable peace only comes about because God calls an end to the hostility between him and our carnal selves when we place our faith in him. A major spiritual attack against Christian stability is accusation. Ephesus knew that well. There was a physical presence of that against them. There was going to be constant forces starting to come their way, which would challenge them and tell them that their faith was false and foolish. But the gospel which restored them to peace would keep them grounded and their feet would stay planted. There's also a sense of advance in the feet of the gospel. And Paul had the Old Testament to remind him of this. Um, Isaiah 53, 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We know Paul knew this verse because he quotes it in Romans 10. How can anyone preach against unless they are sent? Uh, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who bring good news. Our presence and our stability and our grounding is not just about holding on to the gospel and peace, but about distributing it and being peacemakers. Peacemaking has a physical outlet. But at its most noble expression, and I believe the one I think Jesus had in mind when teaching the Beatitudes, was about restoring God's peace to the earth. There is a beauty in the countenance of the believer who is grounded in their gospel, who shows endurance in their gospel pursuit, who can withstand the attacks that come their way by the security they have in the gospel of peace. And there is beauty in the holy might they wield, not to conquer and make war, but to be an expression of God's peace, which comes about when God's reign is proclaimed. This is what you are doing when you share your faith. You are a peacemaker in that sort of frame. The dark alternative is getting bogged down in human turmoil and trouble. This leads us to ignoring the spiritual realm. It lures us into the trap of playing the man, not the ball. When we get stuck in this place, we tend to seek a counterfeit peace, which is more to do with getting our own way rather than proclaiming the peace of God. A few years ago, and I'll get that image up there, uh, uh, Dave, um, a shoe company in the West, back in 2014, a shoe company in, in, in America um, was held to account for the way they promoted one of their products, just that shoe that was up there. For five years... This shoe company had pioneered a shoe which looked funny and was designed to replicate the shape of your feet. The craze which came about from this is known as barefoot running. The company used an ad campaign over that five-year period which they claimed all sorts of health benefits for people who would wear their shoes. Trouble is, there was absolutely zero research to back that up. In fact, studies show that the opposite can be true, particularly when running on concrete, which our bodies are not created to do. So the end result after the court case was nearly a $4 million penalty to the company. Every pair of shoes was sold for $100 a pair. And they were told to refund their customers at $94 a shoe. Lost out big time. There is spiritual footwear that is proven to last. And there is false footwear which claims benefits it cannot back up when tested. When you wear the wrong footwear, you won't endure. When you wear the wrong footwear, you won't even survive the march to where the battle is, let alone advancing anything. When your feet become damaged from poor or missing footwear, you become lame and you become a liability to those around you. It will slow the progress of the unit you are part of. Sadly, I have met believers who have had a lame expression of faith. If I'm honest, in some of my early faith years, I personally expressed a faith that probably was kind of lame as well. Their experience and personal expression of faith is inconsistent and unstable. 
They become too preoccupied with their failures. They cave in when the first demonic accusation comes. They get caught up in the shortcomings of others and turn the war sideways instead of moving forward. They reduce the size of the battle to simply gaining a personal empire instead of looking to advance the kingdom of God. All of that is just lame. And people like that, people who have been around for a while and should be solid disciples by now, they become a, a liability. They can do harm when they're actually trained and empowered to do good. Some of this comes down to footwear. What are our feet shod with, friends? Peace from our grasp of the gospel? Or turmoil because we're still unsettled and at enmity with God ourselves? So today I've talked about the belt, breastplate, and footwear. And I want to pause here and lead us on a bit of deliberate reflection on that. 